Are you enjoying our service? Yeah. Good. good. I love that song. That's good stuff. And, and uh, I don't know. Lots have been happening. I don't know if there are any Browns fans in the house, but, uh, you know, they made the playoffs. And also today, the first day that we've ever had hot chocolate in the cafe. So anybody catch that? See, the Browns make the playoffs. We celebrate with hot chocolate from now on. That's the way it is. So that's what we got going. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for being with us. And we are in a series called Borrowed Time. And, and we're going through the letter of uh, 2 Timothy. And uh, as we do that, today we're, we're going to cover every verse. and try. So it may not feel that smooth, but we're gonna just going to crank through it. But remember, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Paul has discipled Timothy. And now Paul is in prison again. And this time wasn't like the first time he was imprisoned in Rome, where he was sort of under house arrest. He was able to, to rent a house and stay there, chained to a guard, but had a lot of freedom. People could come and, and see him and all that. This time, he's in a dungeon. This time, he knows it's bad. This time, he expects to be killed, to be executed, specifically He'll be beheaded because they didn't allow Roman citizens to be crucified. Nero's in charge. The man is an animal. You can look him up in history. It's bad news. And he's writing his last words. He hopes to see Timothy one more time. He's not sure that's going to happen. And so he writes this letter, and he's giving Timothy sort of like final instructions Paul knows his time is about up. And we, we've been using this hourglass to say, Paul sees his life draining away. Every time somebody enters the prison, every time a, a door clanks, he's wondering, is this the day, is now the time that he's going to be put to death? Every second slipping away, nobody better than Paul realizes how life is short, and the preciousness of life. And now Paul, as he gives these final instructions to Timothy, he wants us to know something, and then he wants us to know what's coming, and he, he challenges us concerning that uh, accordingly. So that's kind of where we're at. We're going to go through every verse of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Are you ready? Okay, hey, that was pretty good. We'll see if you're ready by the time I'm done, you know. Then you'll be like, yeah, okay, right. Number one, first thing he starts off, and there's three points here that I've divided this chapter to, is he's warning. He says, warning, things are going to get worse, which, which is not really uplifting, right? Warning, things are going to get worse before they get better. And he starts off in verse one. Here's what he says. But realize this. That in the last days, difficult times will come. He says, hard times are coming. And he uses this term, last days, which causes a little bit of confusion because we know God has told us a lot about end times. This term, last days, though, this specific phrase is very broad. So basically, Paul is saying that he was living in the dawn of the last days. And here's how it happened. Like all through the Old Testament, we know that Messiah is coming. 
and that then will be ushering in the last days. And it gets closer and closer and closer. Then Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, that's the dawn of the last stage. So basically, I'm telling you, we've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. And now we come right up to the edge with the first coming of Christ. And now there's a gap between the second coming of Christ, which is 2,000 years and counting. But now time is still moving, but now we're right along the edge. And we see ourselves just veering a little bit, but at any time we're realizing Christ could come back. That his return, his second return, it's imminent that it can happen, his second coming. And so we're waiting for that to happen. Now, as we walk along this edge, there are signs that the Bible gives us that will show that the time is even closer. And Paul talks about some of that. But we know, for example, we're not covering this today, but you know, there's going to be uh, the rapture of the church. There's going to be uh, the Antichrist will be revealed. We know that there's seven years of tribulation. All this we're waiting for because that's the edge and that leads right up to the second coming. That's all another sermon, but you know, that's kind of in the context of what's happening here. And now Paul's saying, in the last days, difficult times will come. And when he says difficult, he's sort of soft pedaling a little bit, the, the English uh, rendering of this. It's really fierce, uh, savage times, violent times will come. And so that's, that's what's happening. And really, this chapter, it serves as a warning for us. Uh, Pam and I, this week, we were gone for a couple of days. We went down to Georgia uh, to attend a funeral in her family. And so we were gone on uh, Wednesday and, and Thursday, and then we got back about midday on Friday. When we came into the house, we were dropping our stuff, and then I was coming to the office but as we walked into the house, I heard sort of a, a high-pitched noise, and I said, stop for a minute, and we listened, and then I realized this was an alarm that I had set, like a, a, a moisture alarm that you set on the floor. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but this high-pitched, so I go down into the basement. I go to my, where my sump pump is, and water is just shooting out like this far from a pipe like this, just flowing in this room in my basement. And, and what's happening is there's a check valve. So this is a sump pump. It sends water up and out. But a check valve makes it only go one way. And then after it's done pumping, the valve flap shuts. And then all this water doesn't go back into your pump, right? Check valve. And so this, but right where my check valve was, it had broken. And so it's going everywhere. So I unplug it. You know, I had to run to Lowe's real fast, do this, do that, and all this. But I'm so thankful that I was warned about that, that I heard that, because I couldn't hear the water flowing, but that high pitch, beep, you know, we go down, check it out. And, and actually, all this had happened once before, and I had fixed it, which really gives you a heads up on what's happening this time, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but anyway, so it, it all got to, but it's a warning. This is what Paul's giving to us, Timothy and us. He's warning us, hey, hard times are coming. And then he's going to say things are going to get bad. And then he gives us a little bit of the specific on how things are going to get bad. He's saying ungodliness will intensify. He's saying, hey, people are generally going to drift further from God. They're going to be more into themselves. It's going to be issue. 
It's going to be a cultural issue in every culture. He's saying, don't get sucked down into that. Because our culture is going to become increasingly immoral. I think you could divide our country up today into two parts. It'd be interesting to do this. How many people in America, I bet half of people in America would think things are getting better. You know, everything's getting better. Then I think there's another half of our country that say, oh no, 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 no. Things are getting worse. You know, better, worse. Wherever you are on that, whatever side of the aisle, whatever your perspective is, Scripture's telling us, hey, things are going to get worse before they get better. And then he's going to describe some of that, how that's going. Because things wind down. Things tend to deteriorate. I mentioned that this happened, something like this happened before. Uh, in the sump pump, that check valve got stuck. It got stuck closed. And the sump pump was pushing with so much force that it blew the pipes apart. And this all happened one time before and I fixed it. Right. And so that was a few years ago. But now a few years later, this time it didn't get stuck. This time the PCV pipe that's part of the check valve just broke. So I didn't even know that could happen. But the point being, wait, things just deteriorate. Things don't last forever. Things get worse. Things wind down. Things wear out. And that's what's going to happen with the world around us. Now, he gives us next in verse 2, he's, he starts giving us 19 characteristics of ungodliness that it's present in Paul's day, but he's saying this will intensify throughout the age until the second coming is what he's saying, in the last days. And here's how it goes, verse 2. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. So he gets on this list, and it's very interesting that he starts with lovers of self. Men will become more and more increasingly lovers of self is the way he says it. And really, it's, it's everything kind of flows out of that, which is very interesting to me because in our culture today, what do we say? We say, you have to love yourself. Love yourself. You have to love yourself in order for you to love other people. You have to love yourself. And we teach that everywhere. We teach that in our culture, and that has come into our churches. But know something. God never tells us to love ourselves. Do you realize that? In the entire Bible, nowhere is God commanding us, hey, you know what you need to do? Love yourself. God knows that's not our problem. That's our default position, right? We automatically kind of love ourselves. We kind of do that. And, and I know some of this is just words, but even when we see people that we care about that are struggling maybe with, uh, with what we would say loving themselves, a lot of times they're struggling, and, and often it's because they feel some deficiency 
that they should have or they need to have or they want to have for themselves so that they will be better. Even that is a form of self-love. I need to be like this, and I'm not, but I need to be, or I need this, or I need this characteristic, or I should have this. And, and, and we know also that people struggle with the feeling of, of worthlessness. But self-love doesn't fix the feeling of worthlessness. Where do we get our worth as a believer? It's not self-love. We get our worth because Scripture tells us God has revealed to us that God has created us. He made us. And He made us in His image. God created us, every single human being, in His image. And not only that, God loves us. Every single human being. God created us. He created us in his image. And God loves us. And not only does he love us, he loves us self-sacrificially. He loves us like that. That's where we get our worth. Not by thinking that we're so great or we have everything. Or No, we get our worth because God gives us our worth. Teaching people to love themselves does not give them worth. Only God truly gives us worth, and even that, we don't deserve it, you know. Now, in Scripture, uh, we, we find several places where God will say, you know, love others as you love yourself, or uh, talking about men in marriage in Ephesians 5, you know, love your wife like you love yourself, and, and so it's there, but it's not a command. The assumption is that we're already loving ourselves, and the challenge is to love other people, to love others, and do that in a self-sacrificing way, and that, that's what's going on. Love your neighbor, you know. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Do to them what you would want done to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and when we hear that, the first, because that's a pretty big thing, is loving people self-sacrificially. And, you know, how many? Everybody? We've got to love everybody? And so we naturally we want to restrict that. So then naturally we ask, well, who's our neighbor? And then Jesus tells us, don't go there. Because somebody asked Jesus that, if you remember. And Jesus said, he told a story, and the story of, of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, the guy that was the least likely guy to be reflected as a neighbor was the guy that showed the love. And so don't go there. We are to love others. God never has to instruct us to love ourselves because loving ourselves is our default. But we need to be able to recognize all these issues, the other 18 things that flow out of loving ourselves. And we need to be able to recognize them for ourselves. We need to know when we're varying drifting, you know, vying off the path that God has intended for us. But we also need to recognize it around us. We need to see it in the mirror, and we need to see it in the media. We need to be able to see it. So lovers of self, and that's people out for themselves, but this attitude brings these other ones. And I want to just really quickly go through these so we will recognize them in the mirror and the media. So here it goes. So lovers of self brings this, and I'll try to do it quick. Lovers of money, that's just being materialistic, wanting, boastful and arrogant, that's living life centered on an inflated view 
of ourself. Revilers, that's damaging others verbally, and usually it's for your own benefit. Disobedient to parents, that's just rebelliousness. Ungrateful, ungrateful. We see that all the time. That's a constant state, a, a, a sense of entitlement. I'm owed this. I'm not grateful. It's owed to me. I deserve it. That's entitlement. Um, unholy, indifferent to things valued by Jesus. Verse 3, it goes into unloving, unable to sympathize with other people, irreconcilable, unwilling to forgive, malicious gossips, that slander, intentionally distorting what other people say, usually for your benefit. We call these, in our culture, that's a soundbite, where you take something out of context and you use it against somebody. Um, without self-control, slaves to personal appetites, brutal, it just means savage, haters of good, unable to see or appreciate moral good. Verse 4 continues, treacherous, breaking promises for personal gain. Oh, that's not going to work out for me to keep that promise. I'm out. Reckless is just rash or hasty, especially used in the New Testament in regards to how we talk about other people. Conceited, we're blind to the preoccupation of self. And then this phrase, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, that's us focused on and finding more satisfaction in personal pleasure than in following God. We want our own pleasure and comfort, and then following God is somewhere down the line from that. And then people holding, this other phrase, a form of godliness, although denying its power. You see this all the time in our culture. It's not easy to see, but you pick up on it. Uh, where people will twist the Bible, God, Christianity, they'll sort of twist things to fit their agenda. They will use God, use the Bible, use Christianity for their own agenda. And, and they twist it when they do that. Uh, I'll give you another example of this. A lot of times you'll see people typically politicians, but maybe even also some of our friends who, when we get on a spiritual conversation or they want to make a point, they'll say something like, hey, I'm a person of faith. I too am a person of faith. You know, what we should do then is say, faith in who? Faith in what? What does that mean, person of faith? What do you mean by that? Faith in who? Jesus? Faith in what? What is it? Because these people say they're people of faith, but then they do ever, and they make it sound like that means they're a Christian, but I don't think they want to say they're a Christian, and then they do everything that violates the Word of God. We should, we should just want to understand where they're coming from on that. Person of faith, what do you mean by that? Avoid such men as these. Then verse 6 continues. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. So here's Paul saying, hey, false teachers have entered, but really in, in the original language, it's like worm their way in to uh, households of weak women and led them astray. Now, Paul's not picking on women in general. He's pointing his finger specifically at a certain group of men who have then taken advantage of some other, another group, specific group, of women. 
And, but he's saying, hey, be careful. Look what's happening. False teachers are worming their way in. And that's never happened easier than that happens now. Because now, you don't have to worm your way through the door. False teachers come in through the media. Social media, the computer, the web, TV. Now, you know, the whole thing, it's all there. It's media that brings us in. Verse 7 continues. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Have you ever met somebody like that? It seems like they always want to learn, 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 but they'll never make a decision on anything. Today, this happens a lot because people question the very existence of truth. Parents and students spend tens of thousands of dollars to send their student to a school where they are taught that there is no truth. And so there's really nothing to learn except for that, which they would say is a truth statement, but whatever. You know, it, it just makes no sense. Questioning truth always allows people to learn, but never come to a decision. Learn, but nothing's binding on them. Oh, that's not true for me. Verse 8 continues. Now, tune in. Verse 8, we're gonna, two, two guys are going to be named that's never named anywhere else in the Bible except for right here. And they're named as if we know who they are. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. You're ready. Verse 8. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, talking about false teachers, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Jannes and Jambres' folly was also. Now, Jannes and Jambres, and we're going, who are these guys? Because we try to look them up in our Bibles, and it's not there. Here's what we know. Jewish tradition, Jewish teaching, and we see that in something called the Talmud, which is actually like a commentary on the Old Testament, and even in the teaching of Josephus, who was a first century Roman historian that had a Jewish background. Anyway, these, they have mentioned these guys, but these guys, the Jewish people believed, were the names of two of the magicians that opposed Moses when Moses was before Pharaoh saying, let my people go. Remember the story? You know, God calls Moses and says, hey, go back to Egypt and deliver my people out of there. And so, and then God, and Moses doesn't really want to go, and God equips Moses with some special signs. So Moses goes, he stands before Pharaoh, he says, hey, God wants to let his people go. And Pharaoh's like, who, who says you're God's God or whatever? And then Moses, actually Aaron, throws down his staff, and the staff becomes this huge snake. And, then, and that, that's a miracle. So Pharaoh then calls his magicians together, and they kind of huddle up, and they, they come from wherever they're hanging out, and they know what's happened, and they huddle up, and they figure out a way, and they come in, and somehow they stand there before Mer and they throw their sticks down, and their sticks become snakes. Although then Moses' snake eats the other snakes, but anyway, you know, it kind of goes like that. But it's like, whoa. And so Pharaoh's like, I don't believe you. We could do that. Well, then the next thing is God tells Moses, turn the Nile into blood. Nile's the life source of the whole place. Turns into blood. Well, then Pharaoh calls his magicians together, and then they get together, and they kind of produce something, and, and they, they turn water into what looks like blood. And Pharaoh says, forget you. 
And then Moses brings the plague, and they, now we're into the plagues, right? And so Moses brings frogs on the land. So they come, and there's frogs everywhere. It's just nasty, and nobody's liking it, and they hate it. And Pharaoh's like, get rid of these things. But then Pharaoh asks his magicians, and they produce some more frogs, which wasn't that helpful, but they did that too. And then the next plague was Moses says, lice are going to come on. And so lice come, and then lice are everywhere. And then Pharaoh calls for his magicians and says, okay, can you do the lice thing? And the magicians say, no, this is God. These guys who are opposing God, they say, hey, this is the finger of God that we're dealing with. Quit asking us to do this. We can't do it. And here, Paul is reminding Timothy of two of these guys by name, saying Jannies and Jambres, saying, hey, just like those guys who opposed God, even though they knew it was God they were opposing. And so Paul's warning them. After he warns that things are going to get worse, he then tells us what to do. That's what we see next in this chapter. He basically says, hey, keep the faith. Continue following Jesus, he's saying. Verse 10, next verse. Now you followed, he's talking this, Paul to Timothy. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Now, we kind of whip through that, and that sounds pretty good. But actually, it's a little deeper than that because these cities he's naming, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. Iconium and Lystra, that's Timothy's home area. That's his old stomping grounds where he grew up. And so now Paul's saying, remember. And then, so now Timothy is going to remember back to when he first met Paul. Here's what happened. Paul is spreading the gospel. He goes to this town called Antioch. In Antioch, he, start, he goes into the synagogue, starts preaching to the Jewish people. A bunch of them start believing. Then a bunch of Greeks also start believing or non-Jewish people. And so the church starts growing there. Then he launches out to another city near where Timothy grew up called Iconium. He goes in there, same thing, goes into the synagogue, preaches about half the Jewish people believe and they start following Christ. A bunch of Greek people, non-Jewish people from the city start following Christ. But as that starts happening, the other Jewish people who didn't follow Christ, they set up an opposition and they plan to stone Paul. They're going to kill him. Paul finds out about it. About that time, Paul moves on to the next city. Great timing. He goes to Lystra. In Lystra, he's there, same thing. He starts preaching the gospel. But in Lystra, this is Timothy's hometown. This may be the first time Timothy ever saw Paul. He goes into the city. He starts preaching. There's a guy who cannot walk there. He heals the man, Paul does, so he can walk. When the town sees this, because this was a well-known guy, they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods, little g. So they think they're gods. So the whole city comes up and they start coming out and they come out to the city. They come up to Paul and Barnabas and they're bringing sacrifices. They're going to slaughter sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Of course, Paul is going nuts, going, no, 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 don't sacrifice to me. I'm just a man like you're a man. I'm not a god. I'm a guy just like you. 
Remember? About that time, now you're thinking, wow, he's getting traction in this town. He's got everybody's attention. Shortly thereafter, here come those Jewish people from Iconium, and they catch up to Paul. They stir up the whole city against Paul just like they did before, but this city's a little more emotional than the last city, and they react, and they stone Paul. The guy that they were just trying to sacrifice to as a god, now they stone him, and they drag him out of the city gates, and they leave him for dead. Paul's friends and followers then, after the crowd melts back into the town, go stand by Paul. And about that time, Paul picks himself up and walks back into Lystra. This is when Timothy meets Paul. So Timothy, hey, when Paul's writing this, Timothy's like, yeah, I was there. I was up close and personal. I saw what persecution looks like. It's bloody. It's messy. It's violent. It's nasty. He gets it. Verse 12 continues. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. And that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Here Paul reminds Timothy, but you, Timothy, keep the faith. Continue following Jesus. Continue following the scripture that gives you the wisdom. Did you catch that? That leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is the central message of the gospel, the central message of the entire Bible, the central message of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all summed up right here. It's that people would come to faith in Christ, that even though we've sinned against Him, God has made a way for us to be forgiven through the death of His Son, salvation through faith in Jesus. And so now as he's talking about this Keep the faith. He says, hey, continue following Jesus, just like Paul. Paul's saying, hey, follow my teaching. And we need to be careful who we're following. Because we have all these voices speaking into our lives from all different directions, all parts of our culture. We need to be careful who we're following. Because they're all around us. Who we're turning into. Who what voices are influencing our thinking? And then, just like we want to continue following Jesus like Paul, Paul's saying, hey, and expect persecution like Paul. All who desire to live godly lives in Jesus will be persecuted. Over and over, Jesus told us this, Paul told us this. He's saying, you follow Jesus, expect persecution. Persecution has come. Basically, our country has been sort of removed for that for a long time. We're Christians today in the world, all over the world, are persecuted every day for their faith. We don't even think about that. 
People are giving their lives to follow Christ. Churches are being torn down in China. Look it up. People are being beheaded in the Middle East. To us, that's blasé now. It's just like, yeah, old news. That's still happening every day. And it's coming here. It's coming. You can see that it, it, it's progressed. And, you know, I'm not crying the blues or complaining. Don't take it that way. But our freedoms are being more and more limited. Christians are being more and more marginalized. It's happening. And that's going to accelerate. We, you can see it coming. It, it's coming. Don't be surprised at persecution. But, but you know what? As believers, we can be joyful during persecution. You know, the little persecution we experience here, like, hey, well, you know, I put something on my social media, I stood up for Christ, or I mentioned that I was a believer, or I, I just put out some biblical truth there, and then somebody hammered me. That really bummed me out. That, you know, I, I can't believe, I, that, I, can't believe I, I was attacked for that. Hey, have joy in that. That means somebody is paying attention that you're pointing people to truth or you're pointing people to Jesus. Hey, you got that going, you got that going for you. Have joy in that. I mean, we experience bad things all the time and bad things happen. We know that. But a lot of times it's just because of our own stupidity. A lot of times it's because some guy doesn't know how to put in a check valve. You know, so it's, it's our own problems. But if we experience hard times because of Jesus, what better thing can we experience hard times for? We have joy in that. Wow, somebody heard me. Somebody who doesn't like Jesus heard me. That's a good thing because we love them. We want them to know Jesus too. So he warns us things will get worse. He says, hey, keep the faith. And then he says, submit to God's word. Just a reminder, and this is the most famous verse in this chapter, verse 16. And it says this, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Submit to the Bible. And, and we've turned submission kind of into a, a, a bad word. But consider the Bible's source. Here in this translation it says inspired by God. That word inspired, literally, in the Greek, in the original, it's God breathe. Scripture is God breathe. Inspired by God means God breathe. It comes out of the mouth of God. It's God's very words. All Scripture is God breathe. And there's implications of the Bible being God breathe. The implication is we should see it as, as an authority that we would want to line ourselves up under, that we would want to submit to. But we've turned submission into a bad thing. Now, some of us in here, we learned submission at kid, as kids from our parents. Not all of us learned that, but some of us did. My brothers and I never sat around the kitchen table Wondering, who's in charge? We knew. We knew who was in charge. 
We, we never wasted any time thinking that maybe we were in charge. Nope, that never even entered our mind. We knew who was in charge, and we knew that if we rebelled against who was in charge, that it would be bad, that we would wish that we wouldn't have done it, which was good for us. But think about it. We should place ourselves under the authority of a loving Father who wants the best for us. We should voluntarily, we should want to voluntarily place ourselves under the authority of our loving Father by following His Word. Because the source of the Bible is God. And then the other thing about the Bible is its usefulness. Did you catch what he said there at the end? It's profitable. It's beneficial. It's good for us. It's profitable for teaching. That's telling me things I didn't know before. It's profitable for reproof. That's challenging. That's getting in my face about things I say I know and believe, but don't actually live it out in my life. It's profitable for correction, exposing my messed up way of thinking and behaving, confronting me with that. It's also profitable for training in righteousness, showing me the righteous way that God wants us to live. Why? So we can be adequate, equipped for every good work. Do you see what's happening? Paul's writing this book to Timothy. He says, I don't know. I hope to see you one more time. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But I'm warning you. Things are going to get worse. And all these characteristics that were present in Paul's day, by the way, are just getting increasingly more predominant today. And he says, so I'm going to warn you things are going to get worse. And, so, and then I'm going to challenge you because of that two things. One, keep the faith. Keep the faith. Keep following Jesus. Second, submit to God's Word. It's God-breathed. It's His instructions for us. Don't forget that because our time is limited. Submit to His Word and follow Him, and He will use us to change the world around us. Let's, let's pray together. Father God, in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, uh, that we can trust. And Lord, a lot of times in a service like this, when we're talking about 2 Timothy 3.16, we, we talk about all the evidences, all the proofs that, that the Bible is your word, that it's accurate, that it's authoritative, that it's authentic to what it originally was when you gave it. And Lord, that's easy to do. But today, Lord, we're just reminded that, uh, that we shouldn't be surprised when difficult times come for us as believers. And Lord, we ask you to give us the strength to keep the faith, even in persecution, that we would remain faithful to you and that we would get our strength from your spirit and also through submitting to your word, your God-breathed instructions to us. Lord, help us to do that. With the knowledge that we know how the story ends, we know that you love us. Lord, we know that you will work all things out. 
And God, we thank you for that. And most of all, we thank you for your son. In his name we pray, amen.